This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, what can I say? You are in for a treat. Bill Miller spends an hour waxing eloquent on everything from why value investing has underperformed and what you should do about it, the impact of the Federal Reserve, why Bitcoin is a fascinating technology as well as a potential currency substitute, maybe for the dollar, maybe for something else. This was really an unbelievable conversation. I I don't want to gush too much, but Bill Miller is just one of these people who understands the way markets work, who understands how to express what's going on in an investment posture. Their funds run a 100% active share, meaning there is zero closet indexing going on. And they have been one of the top performers since the market bottomed 0809 after the financial crisis. What can I say? This is just a tour de force exposition on investing theory and practice in the real world. Just unbelievable. So with no further ado, my conversation with Bill Miller. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My extra special guest this week is Bill Miller. He formed the Miller Value Partners in 1999 as both an RIA and an investment manager for the Miller Value family of funds, running about $2 billion in assets under management. Previously, he ran the Leg Mason's Capital Management Value Trust, After fees, the fund beat the S&P 500 for 15 consecutive years from 1991 through 2005. That is a feat that I don't think has ever been matched. Bill Miller, welcome to Masters in Business. Thanks, Barry, and it's great to be here. I should say welcome back. Our last conversation was in 2016. Let's talk a little bit about what's going on in the world today. Early March, you went on TV and said you were looking at one of the best buying opportunities of your lifetime. That turned out to be quite a prescient call. Tell us what you were looking at that led to that conclusion. What was behind the thought process? So one of the things that that, uh, I'm quite confident of having done this for just about 40 years is that nobody can predict the market um, with any, maybe maybe Jim Simons at Renaissance, but certainly not, (laughs) certainly not me and certainly not... uh, basically anybody else that I've come in contact with any consistent basis. So given that, I think, I think one of the things that I want to look at is just how the market has behaved relative to its history. And in this case, uh, what we saw was the fastest decline from all-time highs to a, to a bear market in history. And when things happen that have never happened before, uh, that always gets my attention. I tend to be in the Howard Marks camp that you can probably, if, if you're lucky, recognize extreme points but other than that, you probably have no better than a coin toss of trying to uh, trying to predict or guess uh, regular cyclical turning points. So in this case, it just seemed to me that the prices had gotten so out of whack with anything other than uh, very very short term uh, fundamentals uh, that that the probabilities were great that if you had a time horizon longer than a few weeks or a few months, that you would do very very well. And I think that you know it reminds me of and. 2000 and, uh, 2008, when Warren Buffett wrote that uh, op-ed, and he, and he said, buy American stocks, that's what I'm doing. And if I was at a meeting with Warren a couple years later, and somebody said, Warren, how did you know that was the right time 
to buy stocks. And he said, I don't know time, I know price. He said that those prices were completely dislocated from any type of long-term, you know, long-term reality unless you believe that the U.S. economy was going to be in a permanent depression. And so I think that's the same thing that, that my view was, that those prices were very, very disconnected. And if you look today, I mean, the market's had a big rally. But look at those prices back on March 23rd or a few days after that. I mean, most things are up you know, 40, 50% from the lows, even if they're not back close to their highs. So that was an extreme, that was an extreme point. So let's talk about both that move down and that move up. Not only fastest bear market, fastest 30% drop in history, but since those lows, markets are up about 44% in one of the fastest recoveries we've ever seen. The common pushback I hear from people is, the market has gotten ahead of itself. We've gone too far too fast. What do you say to those folks? I'd say I'd make one, one comment and then one um, observation. So the comment is that if you go back and look at bear markets and look at history, there tends to be a, 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 so a rough symmetry between how long it took to get to the lows and how long the recovery took. So when you've had a very, again, this is the sharpest in history, when you've had a very, very uh, dramatic drop, you can go back to 1987, for example, the market crash. So the market, you know, after churning around at the bottom for a while, began a strong recovery in, 19, in 1988 and, and, you know, made it back to those highs in the not-too-distant not future. So this is, not, this is not unusual compared to what we've seen before, just so we don't see these kinds of declines very often, and they tend to be far enough apart that most people don't go back and look at history. They just, they just look at their own, uh, their own reaction. So, um, you know, w- with that said, I would say that um, that, that comment that which, which you mentioned about people thinking the market's ahead of itself, the market disconnected from reality, is one of those things that I, I always puzzle at because this is something that's actually pretty easy to uh, analyze. And the, the, the first part of it, the, the first part of it is that um, if you before you can say the market is disconnected from reality, you have to have some belief or evidence about what the connection is between the market and economic reality. <laughs> and the answer there is very clear. There is no connection whatsoever. If you go back and look at all the, going back from 1930 to like 2019, and you look at the, at the annual correlation between the market's return and, the, and economic growth, the answer there is I think that, uh, that the correlation coefficient is 0.09 meaning it's random. There's, you know, zero is exact random. It is 0.09. So there's basically no correlation whatsoever. If you look at rolling 10-year periods, so not just that, you know, not just the annual periods, but rolling every rolling 10-year period from that same thing, the correlation is minus 0.4, meaning there's a negative correlation between the, the economy and economic growth. So the idea that this market is somehow disconnected from reality because it's actually gone up and economic growth is, you know, was going down at the same time is very consistent with history. And the second thing, and maybe maybe easier to understand, is that the market is a as a forward-looking indicator. It reflects people's expectations about what's going to happen. It doesn't reflect what has happened in the past. And so, as I like to say, the market predicts the economy. The economy does not predict the market. So the market bottomed way before the economy. The economy's bottoming, you know, and the second quarter will be the, you know, the economy's, the economy's bottom. And the market's bottom was in the first quarter. And so I don't think there's anything out of whack with what's going on. If the market bot- if the market did in fact bottom in the second quarter, as it appears it did, then that means that it's, it w- it's getting better. And so if it's getting better, then the market should be reflecting that it's getting better. And if you look at the current consensus, what you'd see is that 
that if the market on an annualized basis in the second quarter was down maybe, let's call it 25 to 30 percent, and we don't know what it is. Some of those numbers, like the housing numbers yesterday, the uh, consumer spending numbers were just way, way better than people expected. But even if we were down 30 percent, then what you would get would be, normally speaking, and I'm going at Ed Hyman's data here, which you'd have an up 20 percent third quarter and up 20 percent fourth quarter. And then if you just get back to a 5 percent nominal growth in the first quarter of next year, you'd be back at all-time highs on GDP. So I don't think that the market is, is ahead of itself. The only way the market's ahead of itself is, is if we have a very huge reversal in what's going on. Namely, we have a, a, we have a uh, so-called second wave where they shut down the economy again. But even though the cases, the caseloads aren't looking that great, um, the death rate's still falling. And I think that we're not going to see a shutdown of the economy. We may see you know, moderate changes in things, but the, the shutdown of the whole economy again the way we did in you know, in March and April, I don't think it's going to happen. So I, I would, I would be shocked if the, if the market retests those old lows. Let's talk a little bit about what's going on today in the world of investing. And you and I were both around in the '90s. I have to ask you about the rise of these Robin Hood day traders. What is this? Just a distraction, or is this a potential speculative frenzy? It's both. I mean, I think that there's, it's, it's a distraction in the sense of these, the, the number of people that are actually trading on Robinhood is trivial in terms of numbers of people or the volume that they can do uh, relative to the overall market. Maybe they can have an impact on something like Hertz and all or some of these smaller names. But, um, but I think the focus on that is, is, is misplaced unless it's just, a, it's just, you're just entered in something entertaining to, entertaining to look at. As you remember, Barry, back in the, Back in the late 1990s, with the uh, you know with the dot com uh, tech telecom bubble, that day traders were everywhere, and they, there weren't Robin Hoods, and that was you know brokerage firms were raising their raising their margin requirements, and so there was a, there was a lot more impact I think on the overall market's behavior during that time than there is right now. The volumes were lower relative to the like the number of people that were trading and the way in which trading was done, and uh, and now the volumes are huge compared to what people in Robin Hood are day traders. Uh, are doing. I remember it as sort of a uh, national pastime. You couldn't walk into a restaurant or bar without seeing the stock market on the TV. It, it's nothing remotely like that today. Right. Yeah. Last we spoke, you, you had a very interesting quote that I have to ask your thoughts on. Uh, in 2016, you said, we are only halfway through the shift from active to passive. Give us an update. Where are we in that process? Do you still think uh, lots of, of fund managers or closet indexers and that this transition is going to continue? Or, or how is your thinking on this changed? I think that, you know, active management is in secular decline. So uh, j- just like newspapers have been in secular decline for a long time, you know, once the Internet got going, active management has been in a secular decline, and that's going to continue um, because most active managers uh, don't add value. And most people, especially as the demographics get older, people become more risk-averse. And so they're, they're happy to have tracking error if, you're, if your active manager is way above the market. But if the, managers, if the market is the standard and you're below the market for a couple of years, then people take their money out. In fact, there was a, a, a statistic, which you probably saw, that I was uh, surprised at, which was that at Fidelity, uh, that basically 30% of Fidelity's clients who were 65 and older took 100% of their money out of equities in the first quarter of this year. So that gives you a sense of both the risk aversion and how fear spreads in the market, and also the fact that, um, that you know, 
passive money still gets still is getting the the flows. You know, equity ETFs are getting flows, but the ag- the average active manager, you know, is getting consistent outflows. And of course, we've seen this year that that equity managers, broadly defined, equity mutual funds have had big outflows, and bond funds have continued to get inflows. So, I think I think we've still got a ways to go in that, and uh, and so it's going to be an uphill climb or uh, you know swimming against the tide or whatever if if you're an active manager. I would say it's also that that the hedge funds have also dropped into that category. They're much earlier in the thing, but you know, in a low nominal rate of return world where the ten-year interest rate is sixty basis points, somebody's going to charge you, you know, one or one and a half or two and twenty to manage your money and take twenty percent or fifteen percent of the profits, no matter how meager those profits are. That's a losing proposition. So I think that also is is the, the hedge fund world is uh, probably a net a net liquidation as well. So you mentioned 60 basis points on the 10-year. What do you make of the bond market uh, where it is? Is it telling us anything about inflation? And what sort of support does that provide for equities if yield on treasuries is practically nothing? Yeah, it's it's really interesting that the, the current yield on the S&P 500 is about three times the yield on the 10-year treasury. And so one of those so-called no-brainer trades to me would be, you know, if you've got a, a 10-year horizon uh, in the market, or even a five-year horizon for that matter, you know, go long the, you know, an equity index fund and, and go short the five-year or 10-year treasury. It would seem to me a, you know, a, a thing that would be very difficult to lose any substantial amount of money. And, and again, if the, if the people who are worried about inflation are right, and inflation isn't a problem for the next couple of years for sure, but if it becomes a problem in year three, four, five, and the yield curve starts shifting up, Significantly, then that would be a, that would be kind of a home run, a home run trade. So I think I think right now, I mean, you know, interest rates, as my son who runs our income fund says, you know, the the data shows that interest rates have have been falling in real terms for 800 years, and so you don't want to bet interest rates are going to rise. And and my return to that is well, if if you, if you lived a thousand years, that would be relevant. But what we see in the bond market is it goes through these long cycles where we had a 35-year bear market in bonds, you know, almost a full working career from 1946 to 1981. And now I've got a 38-year bull market in bonds. And rates can't go much lower than where they are right now. Maybe they're not going to go up a lot, but uh, they're they're negative in real terms and certainly real terms after tax. So I I think bonds are, are as unattractive now as stocks were in uh, September of 1987 when the then 30-year yielded 9%, and uh, the stock market yielded about uh, 2.8%, and the stock market traded at the highest P.E. since 1929. And so there was no reason to own stocks then because the dividend yield on the dividend growth rate in stocks is about 6%. So if everything went well, you'd get close to 9% in stocks if valuations didn't drop and they stayed at the, at the all-time high. But otherwise, why, why not just buy 30-year bonds and, and go home? And that was the right thing to do then. And I think the right thing to do now is to forget about bonds, except you know, except in a, in a very rare instance that you might think we have a deflationary bust, in which case, okay, Ben Graham talked about having no, no less than 25% of your money in bonds, so put 25% in quality corporates or something like that. But I, I don't find bonds at all attractive now. Hmm, quite interesting. You mentioned earlier some of the tech stocks of the 90s. What do you make of the big five, big cap tech stocks, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Microsoft, Google? Have they gotten too big? And if so, is there risk of government uh, re-regulation or even antitrust enforcement? 
Yeah, I thought you were going to ask a slightly different question, which is, you know, uh, not have they gotten too big, but are they too expensive, and what kind of, you know, what kind of uh, opportunities are there? So let me ask. Well, you they're question. certainly they're certainly cheaper than they were in the 1990s. Ra- radically cheaper, radically cheaper. So I, I'm not even I'm not worried about. We we own all of them except for um, uh, Netflix right now. So uh, at which we've owned, we're the largest shareholder in Netflix a couple of different times, and that's the only one that I think is is expensive although i think if you've got a longer term time horizon that'll do that'll do fine as well but you go back to the late 1990s i mean ge traded 50 times earnings and home depot traded at 50 times earnings so uh you know the, these stocks at this level don't look to me uh, particularly extended at all even though they've done very very well that they should have done well now the different question though where's the risk in them well there's there's always risk in, in everything and i think you hit it the risk is uh, antitrust, or a reinterpretation of antitrust. I don't think, unless there's a Democrat sweep, that you'll get any significant change in the antitrust laws like the Clayton Act or the Sherman Act. But nonetheless, there doesn't have to be a change in the laws before courts can interpret things differently, regulators can, can come after the companies. And so I do think the regulatory risk and the government risk um, is high in these companies, but that's what you'd expect for companies that are so dominant and, and so large, and you know, five of them are 20 or 25 percent of the S&P 500. So, yeah, I, now I don't think the risk is so great that it'll significantly inhibit what you can earn from them, but maybe they traded a multiple point or two lower and there'd be headline risk more, I think, than real risk. Bill, let's talk a little bit about some of the changes we've seen in the industry, including what some people are calling the death of value investing, which I have to imagine you're going to snicker at. What, why has value been having such a difficult time, and what does this mean for people's portfolios? Uh, yeah, it's a fascinating question, and there's a lot of, there's a, a lot of uh, I'd say, different views on this. We've got a, a guy named Dan Lysick who runs, a, a, I'll call it a, a, you know, a pure value or a classical value portfolio, which, which is basically a, a low price to tangible book, low PE, low price to cash flow. And as you might expect, he's been having a very difficult time of it and, and sends out a never-ending stream of emails about how extreme this is and how it's never happened before and it's got to be a snapback and all. And then you might have seen Cliff Asnes' work on the same sure. thing about how extreme this is and, and he believes that you're going to get a snapback. So where I come out on this is I think that the odds are overwhelming that that I'd say value as traditionally understood will do very well from roughly now until maybe a year or two years from now. It could be longer, yeah. but why I say that is that, that value has led out of every recession as far back as the data goes. And the, the reason for that is that when companies, when the economy peaks and goes down, value names just tend to be more cyclical, their return on capital drops, and so their theoretical valuation, just valuation drops, and the stocks underperform. And then when we come out of a recession, their, their return on capital rises because they're more cyclical than a Coca-Cola or an Amazon. And so, therefore, uh, they outperform. And we've seen that right now. If you look at the, at the overall, I'm going to repeat that right now. If you look at what happened you know, going to March 23rd, the, the, the tech names, uh, the stay-at-home names, the secular winners, you know, ServiceNow and Shopify, those kinds of things, they killed the market. And, uh, and some of the guys that are really good at this, like Dennis Lynch at Morgan Stanley or James Anderson at, at Bailey Gifford, the, you know, the high-growth high guys, I mean, they're up, in the, they're up 40% for the year. And you know, traditional value guys are at the, at the bottom of the page. But since March 23rd, the value people have beaten the growth people pretty handily. 
and uh, and I think that that's because that the the economy you know has been bottoming, and then the economy is going to start up. And so what you what you see, I mean, a day like yesterday, the market's up one and a half percent, and most of those growth, all those growth names underperformed dramatically. So I think in the in the relatively short run, meaning now until the next year or two, the odds are strong that value will outperform growth. But a little more a little more uh, nuance here. The reason that value has done so badly for ten years is that value thrives in a in a um, in, in an environment of reversion to the mean. So the economy speeds up, and then it peaks, then it goes down at bottom. So you have this kind of cyclicality. And if you look since the, since the financial crisis, since March of 2009, the economy for 10 years grew basically between 1.5% and 2.5%. It averaged about 2% with low inflation, with, uh, uh, with uh, low interest rates, and not a lot of cyclicality. And therefore, that's an environment where growth is going to thrive because low nominal growth, you know, such as or low real growth, one and a half to two percent. Basically, then if, if you grow fast, like an Amazon or or a Google Alphabet, your your theoretical valuation is much much greater than it is otherwise. I saw a thing in the journal you might have seen it last week where somebody was looking at the academic literature and said that if you if you run Nestle through a model of what the what the you know the market kind of looks like now with interest rates at 60 or 70 basis points and low nominal growth from here, then Nestle's worth 50 times earnings. And so I think that's the, that's the thing that would put value you know, back behind the eight ball, which is if growth in the future is like growth in the last 10 years, so call it 1.5% to 2% after we, after we go through this high growth period rebounding, and interest rates stay low, and by that I mean you know, the, the 10 years, I don't know, 1.5% or 25 or then value is going to have trouble again. So I think that's the, it's maybe a long-winded answer. So it depends a lot. It's context-dependent. So if, if the world looks somewhat different, if the curve shifts upward, if inflation starts to come back, then value will kill growth. And if it doesn't, then growth will probably beat value again. So you mentioned the stay-at-home stocks are, are doing well. What industries and companies have been permanently impaired by the virus, and where are the opportunities arising from this whole lockdown experience is this going to change us or is this just a temporary experience so permanent is a long time <laughs> and i would say that I'd, I'd say to that that nobody has any idea because nobody knows what the future is going to bring i mean people have talked about bill gates and others have talked about going back years that we're going to have another pandemic at some point the problem is you can't predict what that point is and so at the beginning of this year, no one was predicting a pandemic this year, which has now radically upended all kinds of things from the economy to, to growth rates to you know, excess death rates to changing industry norms and all of that kind of stuff. So if you look forward and you say, what's, what's permanently different? Well, uh, there, there's going to be nothing permanently different if we have a vaccine in the, next, in the relatively short term. By that, I mean over the next six months to a year that's effective. Because if that happens, then all of a sudden you can fly safely, you can travel on cruise ships safely, you can gather, you can have sports, you go in sports, and you can go in movie theaters. And, and so the kind of environment that we saw in January and February would be right back on the table. If, on the other hand, there is no vaccine, uh, and I'll also say it's not just a vaccine, no vaccine and no effective treatment. So maybe there won't be a vaccine, but if the death rate for the COVID-19 drops down or turns out to be about the same as flu, then I think there'll be a longer-term uh, uh, return to normalcy, but we'll, we'll get back to that same normal thing. 
So that's sort of point one and point two, which is uh, which I'll summarize more, more shortly, is that the effect of this is going has been to, and I think it will be permanent, to accelerate trends that are already in place, which mm-hmm. means uh, trends towards online shopping, for example. And to also, uh, it uncovered some things that we didn't know, namely that a large number of people don't have to be in an office building in, in, in certain industries to be very productive. And so I think James Gorman at, uh, at Morgan Stanley and others have been fairly uh, vocal about the fact that the real estate footprint for, you know, for financial services companies is going to be significantly, significantly different going forward. So that I think that commercial real estate is potentially exposed, not in the near term, but over the, over the longer term. And again, a lot of stuff is just, just in the middle. We just don't know what the answer is yet. I was on a Zoom call when one of the participants were marveling over the new technologies, and I had to point out, hey, we've had FaceTime and screen share and Google Hangouts for years and years and years. People just didn't have to use them. So your point about the pre-existing trends is very well made. Yeah, I mean, I think it's. I mean, I think that's the. That's about all I can say in confidence is that any trends that were in effect uh, were probably accelerated because of this. I couldn't agree more. Let's talk a little bit about some of the things that you've seen change over the course of your career. And I want to start with something that is a little surprising. Let's talk about cryptocurrency. How actively involved in the crypto world are you? And where do you see this going as either a speculation or a potential asset class? It's interesting the way you framed that, Barry, because if you, if you ask how actively I am in it or actively involved in it, I'm, I'm not active at all. I have a very large position personally in Bitcoin. I think uh, Financial Times had a, did an analysis, and as of at least a couple of years ago, if, if I got their data right, they weren't naming names, but I think I was a top 100 holder of Bitcoin uh, in the world, and I have, but I haven't, I haven't bought or sold a Bitcoin in, in years. So, but I am, I am holding it. I haven't. I'm not trying to trade it. I'm not trending like that. And my view on cryptocurrencies was and is that they are, and I'm, I'm talking mainly about Bitcoin here. The other, the other uh, cryptocurrencies, uh, I think, I think are mostly, mostly uninteresting. There are some that are interesting, but mostly uninteresting. But I think it's a, a very interesting technological experiment. We haven't seen any kind of thing like this as kind of an innovation in, in finance and in money, really in, really in history. And, and so I think to bash it, as many of the very prominent people whose names I won't mention, but I think we all know who they are, what, what, to bash it is to, is to I think, uh, without, without also, I think, analyzing it in any kind of, any kind of care, uh, is, uh, is probably premature. And I, I do believe, one, I've changed my mind on one thing, which is that when I first got involved in Bitcoin, and I think my average cost on my Bitcoins is around, uh, my initial cost is around 200 my average cost is around 300, $300 a Bitcoin. And my view then was that it was, it was very, very risky. It had a, a non-trivial uh, chance of going to zero. And by non-trivial, I meant that, you know, probably at least 25%. Uh-huh. Well, so un- unlike many investments, uh, with Bitcoin, the higher it goes, the less risky it is longer term. With other investments of the stock, the higher it goes, unless that's you know being driven totally by fundamentals, the riskier it gets. The more expensive it gets, the riskier it gets. Whereas here, what's what's leading to the Bitcoin's price at you know around nine thousand dollars right now, is greater and greater adoption. So we're seeing more and more institutions get involved. 
what you're seeing is uh, is you know exchanges uh, getting more I'd say uh, professionalized and not being quite the wild west although it's still pretty much the wild west. But we're we're still early in that game, and the thing that encourages me probably the most is that the venture capital firms, the people who are who you know who make their living trying to sort out which technologies are worthy of investing and which aren't, have not every venture capital firm is big in Bitcoin, but many of the most prominent ones are, and I think that's probably the the, the thing that gives me the greatest confidence is they're still putting new money into this and and raising new funds for this, and that increases the probability that it works. And then secondarily, the point is, I think it's it's right now just a, just a you know a, a speculative vehicle. I think it could become an asset class. I think it's most likely to be uh, you know what one of the books well, is entitled Digital Gold. I think that's probably the most likely uh, venue for it to succeed at. And I think also that one of the things that's gotten some attention, as you probably know, is that Paul Tudor Jones has put close to I think now he's close to two percent of his funds in Bitcoin. And other people like Stan Druckenmiller, who I don't believe owns owns Bitcoin, or Ray, Ray Dalio, who I don't believe owns Bitcoin. I, I'm not sure, but but they are, they are bullish on gold because of the massive stimulus, the massive money printing, printing and not that they're bullish because they think we're going to run away inflation. They just believe the probabilities of gold doing well, and gold is, has done well, are increasing. And my, my view is that if, if gold does well in the next five to ten years, Bitcoin will do a lot better because it has many advantages that gold doesn't have. So huh. I, I would I would say that you know if, if I were to advise people, which I don't do on this kind of thing, but um, what I did was I, I put about one percent of my liquid net worth in Bitcoin, and I would say for people who are interested in it, that's an interesting way to go because anybody can afford to lose one percent of their liquid net worth, and uh, and if you can't, then you ought to be in in cash or in you know short term short-term government bonds. Anybody that owns stocks can afford to lose 1%. So, but that right-hand tail of the distribution, if it works, uh, is, is you know many, many times the current price. Quite fascinating. So you mentioned it's a technology, digital gold as well. Is this a potential currency and a potential alternative to the dollar? And regardless of Bitcoin, is the almighty dollar going to continue to be the almighty dollar into the foreseeable future? What potentially could dethrone the dollar as, as the world's reserve currency? Yeah, that's a really interesting uh, and important question because a guy uh, wrote a book on the dollar called you know, Exorbitant Privilege you know, some years ago. And uh, the dollar has been a huge, huge benefit as the reserve currency for the U.S. It's why we don't you know, suffer the, the problems of, of countries that you know, have to use dollars, and 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 so will will be vulnerable to runs on their own currency and in favor of the in favor of the dollar. You might remember back in nineteen uh, in two thousand seven, two thousand seven and eight, that Warren Buffett and Paul Krugman, when asked what their what the risk was to the overall market, they both mentioned the current account deficit and said they were concerned about a dollar collapse and people would lose confidence in the dollar because of our massive current account and growing current account deficits. And um, and so uh, it turned out the current account deficit wasn't a problem at all. The housing market was a problem. But and when the when the global financial crisis came, people didn't sell dollars; they bought dollars. Mm-hmm. So I think that that gives you a sense of of, uh, of how powerful the dollar is right now. The issue, though, is that um, that we're in competition with the Chinese globally, and the Chinese economy will be bigger than ours at some point. 
and the Chinese are are experimenting and I think going to come up with a with a, a cryptocurrency that will be you know that the, the Chinese government will back. And part of the reason they want to do that is to try and undermine the dollar. So I would guess also that that the U.S. will also at some point have a you know have a Fed-backed cryptocurrency and maybe some other the other reserve currencies as well. So I think that's a potential significant change that as it evolves, uh, that would also uh, put a lot more attention on Bitcoin. And of course, the big advantage of Bitcoin is that it's permissionless, it's decentralized, it can't be hacked, and it can't be um, debased. And and so I think that difference between a government-backed currency, even if it's a cryptocurrency, and uh, one that uh, is, is basically independent, its whole its whole way of operation is independent of any government, would um, would be beneficial to Bitcoin. So it doesn't have so to be there's a, a collapse. It's just that Bitcoin would benefit from the differentiated aspect of it to whatever other sorts of cryptocurrencies or payment systems come around. You call Bitcoin digital gold. I've been calling it libertarian gold, and I can't see that crowd getting behind, certainly not behind a Federal Reserve-backed crypto and uh, a, a centrally planned um, regime like China. I can't imagine the libertarians buying into that. Uh, do you really think a Chinese cryptocurrency has a chance to capture the imagination of at least the early adopters in that space? Um, let me let me resort this out. You know, if you look back at Bitcoin when it got started and who its initial enthusiasts were, it was basically libertarians, people that hate the Fed, inflationists, hard money people, all that kind of stuff. They they, they provided the early impetus and the emotion uh, uh, to get behind it because it, it it checked a lot of their boxes. So if if you think of Bitcoin as a as a favorite of the libertarians, you know, as a, as a politicized thing which I think it is to a, a minor extent, much minor than it used to be before. No, the libertarians are never going to get behind a, 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 um, a government-sponsored cryptocurrency, much less a Chinese-sponsored cryptocurrency. But they're a relatively small part of what, you know, what drives the global economic system. And I think the rest of it is going to be just based on practicality and, and it doesn't work. And, uh, and does it solve some kind of financial need? And we'll just have to see that. Again, it's early, it's early days in this you know, Friedrich Hayek wrote a, wrote a monograph called The Denationalization of Money, where he argued that there should be, you know, that, that basically monies, monies plural, should compete with each other. And any bank should be able to issue its own money, any company should be able to issue its own money. And then the market will sort out which ones are valuable and which ones aren't. And we had that in the United States for about 30 years. It didn't work out too well in the, in the 19th century. But it doesn't mean that it can't work some version of it in the future. And I think that's part of what, part of the direction that this is going right now. So let me shift gears on you a little bit. I, I have to bring up something I'm fascinated by. Um, 2018, you made a $75 million donation to John Hopkins University, your alma mater, to the philosophy department. Turned out to be the largest ever gift to a philosophy department. Explain what motivated that. Tell us uh, about your thinking behind that gift. Sure. So I went to grad school at, at Hopkins, to, got uh, accepted into the Ph.D. program there uh, in the mid-1970s, and after I got out of the Army. And, um, and I was, had my mind set on, um, on becoming a college professor. And that was a very bad time, just like it is right now. It's, just, it's been a bad time for like 40 years to get a 
PhD in a, in a, in a, in a humanities, whether it be English or philosophy or French or whatever the case may be. And so when it finally became clear to me that that was not going to be a, uh, something that made a lot of sense, I, I would probably be a vagabond bouncing from college to college. I then shifted gears. I'd always been interested in markets, and so I, I was fortunate to get a job initially uh, at a private company and then moved into their treasury function and managed some money for them and then went to Lake Mason in 1981. And the thing as I look back on was the thing that probably was the most useful, practically useful thing to me, much more useful than being an economics major undergrad and you know learning money and banking and all that kind of stuff. And the, you know the equation of exchange, MVV equals PQ, were the, the analytical habits of thought and the critical analytical skills that you learn uh, in philosophy, which is very rigorous and, uh, and in, in some cases highly quantitative, although I, would, I wasn't particularly attracted to that part. But I, I, my view is that I would not have had anything like the success that I've had in capital markets had I not had that philosophical training, because part of it is that, that you're always trying to figure out what's wrong with your view and not trying to press your view about what's Right. A lot of people in markets, as you're undoubtedly aware, have very strong views about lots of things, you know. I mean, lots of very smart people were short Tesla and thought it was a fraud. Lots of very smart people thought that Amazon was going to go bust. Barron's called it Amazon.bomb. But when you get, you know, when you get kind of the bit in your teeth and have a strong view on that, you tend to ignore countervailing information and look for confirmation and all kinds of psychological things come to play. And one of the things of going through the drill in grad school philosophy uh, at least at Hopkins, uh, was imparted to me that you've got to hold all that stuff back because you're, what you're really trying to do is, is get at the, at what's called the argument to the best explanation. So what, what's, what's going on here? Not what do I want to go on or what do my beliefs tell me, but you know, you've got to consider all evidence from every angle. So it's like a Rubik's Cube look at things. And that was enormously, uh, helpful to me. And I would say that it was, it was part of why, you know, we bought Google on, we're second buy, biggest buyer of Google on the IPO. The, big buyer of Amazon on the IPO, and so a lot of those names that have been among our biggest winners have been due to, I think, the analytical skills that I developed in grad school, and I thought it was a useful way to, to uh, you know, to pay that back, because I think the more people that are exposed to philosophy, so Hopkins Department will more than double as a, as a result of the size of this, and they've already hired, you know, the last few years, to several distinguished philosophers, so I think, it, I think it'll be good as more students at Hopkins, uh, take philosophy and and also I just I thought it was good to shine a light on the value of philosophy and especially when people are thinking about STEM so much uh right. you know and, and 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 using your education to get a job I, I I think that's fine but I think that um actually that the humanities have a, a a practical value as well as a you know as an intellectual value to people as well so one of the things that's kind of intriguing watching people who are not epidemiologists track all the data is that we're testing so many more people today that we're finding lots of asymptomatic um, people who are infected or asymptomatic um, people who are currently infected. So that's driving the death rate down. And then the number of people under 50 and under 40 who seem to be getting it, who have a much better prognosis um, for surviving, those are really making... uh, the the mortality rates look better than they did in the beginning when we really only found out about who had it based on whether they went to the hospital or died. Right, right. Yeah, I mean it's it's 
it's interesting. I'm on the I'm on the board of Johns Hopkins, which is kind of um, you know ground zero for all the data on this, on sure. this kind of stuff. And we have a, a call on COVID every used to be every week. Now it's now it's every other week. But yeah, that was that was one of the things that, that came up in the call this morning. Which is if you look at like Florida, for example, where you're getting a huge increase in in cases. Um, before Florida reopened, the average age of somebody with COVID was 62. And since it's reopened with all that uh, jump in cases, the average age of cases since then is 35. Wow. And if you look at then the data on mortality of people who are 35, then their mortality, their chance of dying is 0. .0005. So basically, it's basically almost nothing. So I think that's what that's what you're seeing, and the, and the, the press doesn't do a very good job of sorting out the the various you know ways in which you can you can carve up these carve up these statistics. So it's and as you said, the the mortality the, the number of people that apparently are asymptomatic in this. I think the CDC said the other day that it's probably ten times the number of people that actually have had the you know have have uh, tested positive. So that would be you know instead of two million people that have had it, it's twenty some million people. And the CDC said it could be as many as 50 times that, which means the mortality is very, very low in the aggregate. And if you look at then carving it by age, I think it's only 6% of the people who have died from COVID were actually in the labor force. So of people that are in the labor force, very little, you know, very little uh, problem, which again makes that, makes the cost of shutting down the economy to try and protect people who are, you know, in their 70s or 80s instead of isolating those people and trying to have them make sure that they don't, you know, they're, that they're uh, not mixing, like people my age, you know, over 70 years old, that makes perfect sense. But, but keeping everybody out of the labor force who has very little risk doesn't make much sense at all. So I, I won't spoil the surprise for John Hopkins, but I suspect there's a big pile of Bitcoin coming their way uh, sometime over the next few <laughs> decades. Um, but let's just keep that between us. So, so you mentioned um, how philosophy has impacted the way you approach investing. How has your philosophy about investing changed over the past few decades? It's hard to imagine the Bill Miller of Leg Mason as a buyer of Bitcoin. I suspect your thinking seems to have evolved o- over that time period. Yeah, I'd say uh, actually I was still an employee of Leg Mason when I made the uh, when I made the Bitcoin the first Bitcoin purchase. Yeah, I guess my my thinking changed mostly around 1990, and it and then it's I'd say it it hasn't changed much since that point in time. So what happened was that we started the value trust in 1982, and by 1986 it was the single best performing fund in the country of the last you know five five years. So we were number one, and Fidelity Magellan Fund were number two. And then when the economy peaked, and we, so we got, we got hit in the crash, not, not terribly, but because we had a lot of cash going into the crash. The uh, 2000 crash? Is that what you, oh, okay. No, the, oh, 87, 87, way back. Cash, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, but when we had that recession, we then uh, had a uh, terrible year in 1989 and 1990, and we lost half our assets in the funds. And so I went back to look at the history of value investing as traditionally conceived and concluded that what people thought about it and the way it was portrayed in the press and, and you know, popularly was wrong and that the academic research did not, did not support uh, that view. 
and namely that value investing was in some way or other superior to growth investing on, on, some, on some fundamental basis, which is probably psychological. And it was the case that just because stocks had a low P or low price to book or low price to cash flow, that, just, that typically meant that they had a low return on capital or, or were highly capital intensive or they had a lot of debt. And that unless one of those things or many of those things changed, they didn't outperform. They just were just statistically cheap. So uh-huh. we began to put a lot more effort on um, integrating what the academic research showed about investing with what the practicalities of investing were. And the key thing was to focus on return on capital through a cycle. So what we went from doing was, was getting away from uh, generally accepted accounting principles, you know, gap measures, and looked at measures of, of uh, economic value. And so we focused on uh, free cash flow yield, return on invested capital, and companies that could earn that through a cycle. That was, that was the big change. And that hasn't really changed very much uh, since then. I'd say the only thing which has changed since then is an understanding, which I talked about earlier in the interview, about when value does well and when uh, growth does well. So that you know, the so-called value can underperform for long periods of time if the economy has very low volatility and low nominal growth rates. So I think that's the, that's the other change which would cause us, you know, which has caused us to, uh, to tilt differently. So in the, in the opportunity fund that I run with my colleague, Samantha McLemore, you know, since the March 09 bottom through 2019, we're in the top 1% of all funds. And that's partly due to the stuff that I just, uh, I covered and then some, some psychological uh, things that we believed about people's risk aversion and misperception of risk, which I think will, repeat again in this in this current uh, post-pandemic uh, environment. So it's funny because when we had our last interview in 2016, I think a large segment of the fund-following world had figured, well, Bill Miller's washed up and left for dead. And I saw some data that had you as the top performing fund for one, three, five years. Uh, this is all post-09. Um, so clearly, whatever you learned in 90 and, and applied after the financial crisis um, seems to be working. It raises a couple of interesting questions. Let me ask about 0809. Why did value um, underperform heading into the financial crisis? And what was it that so many people missed in the spreadsheet that was evident if you look at books like The Big Short or the movie or just how crazy the the home flipping epidemic had become, why was it so challenging to see that if you were looking at at balance sheets as opposed to the real estate listings? Yeah, I'd, I'd say that um, there's, a, there's a line that Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's partner, uh, said in, I think it was 2009, because, you know, he had just hired uh, Todd and Ted to come start managing money for uh, Berkshire maybe a year or two earlier. And, um, and they were asked at the annual meeting, you know, did the guys that you hire, did they outperform uh, in, this, in this bear market? And, uh, and Buffett said, no, they, you know, they underperformed. And, and, uh, and somebody said, well, what, you know, what do you think you know, they did wrong? Or the implication of, you know, where they, where they mess things up. And, and Charlie Munker said, he said, uh, he said, well, he says, the way that I look at this, he says, I think the market S&P was down 38% or something like that in 2008. Charlie said, in my view, he said, if you weren't down at least 45%, then you didn't know what you were doing. 
which I thought was a, was a, was a clever line. And I, I think that the issue that, you know, in, in retrospect that, that I looked at was that there were, there were structural things that I missed. The stock market never got really expensive in the sense of, you know, 20 right. or 25 times earnings and expensive relative to, to, uh, to rates. And part of the reason was that the market had kind of picked up that there was a risk there. And it was, uh, you know, it was an asset-based risk. And most, almost all recessions are due to liquidity uh, uh, implosion. So, you know, Fed tightens, the discount rate goes up, the economy goes into recession, that kind of thing. But it's basically the, the raising interest rates. And there, there typically weren't, you know, uh, debt-financed assets that were such a large part of the economy that it could, it could be a risk to the financial system. And I think that's what, that's what I missed then. So there were, yeah, in fact, the academic research didn't even uh, um, distinguish between uh, balance sheet-based recessions and uh, income statement recessions, and it does now. And I think that's so that's one of the one of the things you've got to be careful looking at in the overall economy is what what kind of problem are we seeing in the in the financial system? And there, the financial system was in was at risk of of you know complete collapse if the Fed hadn't hadn't put tarp in there. The banking system could easily have collapsed, and that's just not the not the case now. The Fed, the Fed has acted much faster and. It's a very different sort of problem that we're facing from what we what we faced before. That problem was a banking system based problem, and the banking system is actually probably one of the strongest parts of the economy right now. So very very different now from from then. So since you brought up the Fed, I have to ask. I I've heard people complain about Fed interventions, Fed support of the stock market. Not only is the Fed buying ETFs, they're buying specific bonds. What do you make of the Fed action? How does it influence your views of the market? And do you do anything to position your portfolio to either withstand or take advantage of whatever the Fed is doing? Uh, yes. So I think that I'm, I'm puzzled a little bit at, at people's views, you know, who have, a, again, a strong view about the Fed ought to do this or the Fed ought to do that. You know, and this is the right thing to do and the wrong thing to do. I mean, my main issue is I, I don't really care what, my personal view is about what the what the Fed ought to do or what not or will do. I, my view is I need to figure out what it is they are doing, and what the impact of that's likely to be. Quite apart from what I think that they ought to do, and I think that also people kind of forget about why we have a Fed in the first place, and the why we have a Fed in the first place was we had recurrent banking prices and collapses and severe recessions or short depressions back throughout the 19th century, and we needed a, we needed instead of a central clearinghouse, which was the way banking system worked. Is have actually a, a a lender of last resort, similar to what the you know what the Bank of England was, and that you know that worked out okay. I'd say I think it's working so much better now because we know a lot more now about how that stuff works, and I still think that people fundamentally just misunderstand what the power of the Fed. Even though there's that famous line, "Don't fight the Fed," but underestimate the power of it and how it fits into the overall economy. So just one one just brief thing. Well, you'll remember this very well, and I'm surprised that you know people still don't pay the attention to this. But when the Fed finally got itself in gear in 2008 uh, and really began uh, acting as a lender of last resort and backstopping facilities and swap lines with the, uh, with the overseas banks and central banks, I mean that was that was what sort of ended along with the TARP. That's what ended the financial crisis and, and saved the banking. You know, save the banking system. But people, you know, lots and lots of people uh, said that we were going to have inflation, and look at all this money printing. And that was completely wrong. And but I think that same basic group 
that was 100% wrong says the same thing again without having any yeah. idea about why they were wrong then. So uh, again, I don't have a I don't have a view, certainly not a dogmatic view, but I, I don't have a view about what whether we're going to have inflation or not. All I know is we don't have inflation now, and uh, and we're not going to have inflation probably in the next year or two. After that, I who knows. But I do think that the Fed did exactly the right thing, which is why the why the stock market bottomed as quickly as it did, and it moved much much faster than this time than it did before. But it moved so fast now because it understood before. What, what the consequences were of moving slowly. So I think that the interesting thing now is that Chairman Powell has said that they will not um, increase rates until they are convinced that, uh, that we're on a sustainable growth path and that they won't increase rates until the realized inflation rate, not their forecast, but the realized inflation rate is... Uh, above 2% on a symmetrical basis. And since it's only been above 2% two quarters in the last 10 years, we don't know when they're going to start the symmetry, maybe as of a, you know, what 2018 when they change their what's called their reaction function, but you're going to they're going to let inflation run in my opinion based on what they've said unless they change their mind at 3 to 4% for a while. So you're looking at a case where interest rates are going to be very very low and no problem at all um, no competition at all for equities for several years. And I think that, that leads you to the view that if the economy is then going to grow, um, you need to be long equities. And again, it's not a straight line, but uh, I think that, that even now, so where are we now? It's, what we're doing right now is actually, interestingly enough to me, following the 2009 playbook. So if you think about it, the, the uh, market bottomed in 2009 in March, in early March. This market bottomed in late March. The market had a big rally in 2009 into uh, June. Uh, that's what this market did. The market had a 10% correction then. That's what this market did. And then it continued to rally throughout the rest of the year. And again, I don't, I don't predict the market. I can't predict the market. But certainly that's the, that appears to be the direction that things are going right now. And, uh, and so I, I think that it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me if the overall, if the overall market hit new highs sometime, you know, uh, late this year or early next year, which I think would probably be a surprise to most people. But if the economy is coming back faster and there's not going to be any inflation and the Fed's not going to raise rates and we could have a new high in GDP by the first quarter of next year, I can't see any reason why the market wouldn't be at an all-time high then. Quite interesting. I have to circle back and ask you another valuation question because this has been an internal debate in my firm, and there is no resolution of it, but I'm fascinated by your perspective. If we look back over the past, I don't call it a century of, of equity valuations, there has been a gradual increase in what investors are willing to pay for a dollar of earnings. And, and I don't mean just like a cyclical move during a bull market. I mean, over the past many decades, um, going back to the 29 crash. And some people have argued that it is a function of uh, how much less capital intensive companies are today. You think about railroads or auto manufacturers versus, you know, a couple of guys, a laptop and a uh, Amazon Web Services. Are companies today more deserving of higher valuations than the material labor and capital intensive companies of last century, or is that just an excuse for 
higher PE ratios? Oh, I would think that, you know, that, that absolutely. I mean, not every company is, is deserving of that. But if you look at the valuations of, I would say, the companies that dominated the, the top, the largest companies in the U.S. in the, you know, the 40s or the 50s or even in the early 1960s, and look at their financial characteristics, you know, their return on capital, their free cash flow generation, their debt levels. Um, and then look at companies that have those same characteristics today. They're not any more expensive today than they were back in the, you know, 50s or 60s, and they're, except that interest rates are lower, uh, which would make them moderately more expensive. But what's really different is that, you know, the, top, the companies that are the biggest companies in the U.S. right now, they have ra- radically different financial characteristics and growth rates, and also, I would say, um, you know, moats around them. I mean, no one's going to catch up with, with uh, Amazon or with, uh, or with Google or with Facebook, uh, in my opinion. No one's going to big bigger than in, in, uh, global uh, streaming than Netflix. So those companies' competitive uh, advantage period uh, is, is much longer than a, you know, than a company like uh, General Motors, and, which faced foreign competition and now faces other kinds of competition from uh, from electric cars and stuff like that. So yeah, I, I think it's uh, I don't think it's uh, hard to explain at all. I think it fits right in with what financial theory would tell you. Quite fascinating. I've covered a ton of stuff. Before we go to our uh, speed round questions, I, I have one last question for you. And it's about the cost of active management. Last, we had a conversation about this. You had said it, it's too high and doesn't deliver enough value for what it costs. What are your thoughts today? The prices have come down fairly dramatically, both for management and for trading, which is more or less costless. What are your thoughts on, on the state of the industry and, and what it costs to be a, an investor if you're working with a professional manager? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I, I stand by what I said before is that um, that the issue isn't well, the issue is the cost relative to the value that you're getting, and I think that that issue is not so much a question of the the skills of active management as it is the the risk controls or the uh, structural impediments that they have, which are partly institutional and partly legal. So, you know, if you, the, the Investment Company Act of 1940 has all kinds of restrictions about how you can construct portfolios, which, which don't exist in the hedge fund world, for sure. And then the business side of, of investment management is such that um, the, the reality of, of client behavior is that, you know, they tend to be, especially in the current environment, risk and volatility phobic. And uh, if you have tracking error on the downside, that, that represents a business risk which kind of leads you then to more of a closet indexing approach. And the only way that approach can work is with lower cost than it currently has and an ability to kind of surf the market just ahead of the market, which I think is very difficult. So the challenge active management has is to actually have a portfolio construction dynamic, which which uh, has high active share, what the professor called high active share, meaning your portfolio can't look exactly like your benchmark. If your portfolio looks like your benchmark, exactly, then you're going to underperform your benchmark if your costs are higher. You can't do anything else. So that means just mathematically that your probabilities of increasing, uh, of outperforming grow as you diverge from your benchmark. But also the that tracking error can also go on the downside. And so that's the big challenge is to try and, try and mitigate that downside tracking error relative to the upside 
tracking error, as we'll call it. And then, and if that's the case, then that's how you can add value because you'll outperform over time. And of course, lower costs are always helpful. Last we spoke, I recall your active share was amongst the highest in the industry. What are you running for an active share for for your funds at at Miller Value? The way it's the way that it's calculated, it's roughly around one hundred percent, ninety eight to one hundred percent. Yeah, so among the highest in the country still. That's what we've done for a long time. So and so it causes, so the, it causes angst. It causes angst when we have a you know a, a year where we're behind the market uh, fairly dramatically. But we can always come back quickly. In 2018, which is interesting, in August of 2000, and uh, I'm sorry, yeah, 2018, August 2018, um, I'm sorry, 2019, uh, August 2019, um, we were, I think, I think 800 basis points or 900 basis points behind the market, wow. and we ended up. 200 or 300 ahead of the market. So we made up like 1,100 basis points in a quarter in a month. And I think that that's, you know, and the reason for that is that the Fed changed its reaction function. The market wasn't worried then about a recession. And so all of the fear that drove the 2018 fourth quarter decline dissipated. And I think that's the kind of thing that you're actually starting to see right now in the market. You look at the people that led, I mentioned earlier, in the first quarter and uh, and they just killed it. But now I think that I mean we're we're now I think uh, we're we're less behind now, even though we had a stronger bear market decline uh, this year than we did back in 2019 and the, in the early part of the year. So we're less behind now than we were in you know, August of 2019. So I feel pretty good about our uh, about our our chances of doing well again this year. So one of the things you've said before that relates directly to that is volatility is the price you pay for performance. I assume you're going to expect volatility. You're going to expect big drawdowns like you saw in 2018. How do you manage your client base? How do you manage the institutions you deal with when all of a sudden during a quarterly review, hey, we're down 8 or 9% behind our benchmark? Uh, is that a challenge to juggle and or, or do people understand that you want the upside, you got to deal with a little bit of downside when things get rough. Well, when I when I bought the fifty percent ownership in what was then called LMM from Leg Mason, uh, I, I brought the um, mutual funds along, but I did not bring the institutional business along, and so we don't we don't really take we have some separate accounts, but we don't really take institutional business. We not that we won't take it. But that we uh, we're not actively trying to grow it, and we're only interested mm-hmm. in having clients that really understand that point that you just made that you're going to get volatility, and that we're try- we try and monetize the volatility. So what we want to do is, if the market goes down a lot, you know, as it did in in March of of this year, we will we will reorient the portfolio around to try and take advantage of when it comes back, and as it goes higher, we want to going to trim the stuff uh, that has done really well and then move that into stuff that would tend to be more resilient on the on the downside but we don't have that even though we obviously you know in the papers every day what we're doing and we have quarterly calls and 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 meetings we don't have those quarterly institutional meetings uh, that we used to have and those those were more more challenging because um, every institution's got a different way of thinking about you know risk and reward and what they're looking for I think we've. I think you know. I've been doing this long enough that that most of our clients understand.
understand that that's what comes with the territory. And so we really haven't, you know, uh, suffered much in the way of redemptions in the last several years. In fact, we have, you know, I don't know if we have net inflows now. Our income fund definitely has net inflows so far this year. And uh, the other fund, if we if we have outflows, it's it's not much, which is kind of unusual, you know, for a for an active mutual fund. Quite interesting. I have a million other questions for you, but I've kept you for an hour so far. So rather than uh, take up too much of your time, we'll have you back when we're finally done with lockdown. And, and let's jump to our speed round, our, our favorite questions we ask all of our guests. And since you mentioned Netflix, let's start there. Tell us what you're streaming these days. What are you watching on either Netflix or Amazon Prime? Or, or what are you listening to in terms of podcasts or, or anything like that? It's a really easy question because the answer is nothing. So nothing. I don't really, I, I, don't, I don't listen to podcasts. Yeah, I don't. I don't stream anything. Uh, I don't watch television, especially since baseball season is on hold. That's about the only time I have the television television <laughs> turned on. So I'm 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 very uh, out of touch with with all of that. You know, all of that stuff. So I'm, I'm much more focused on um, you know reading than I am on on listening or watching. So let's jump to that question. Uh, tell us about what you're reading these days and, and mention some of your uh, favorite books. Sure. So uh, I, just, uh, I, I just finished uh, Thomas Mann's The Magic Mountain, a great classic that I, haven't, uh, that I had not read before. Um, I'm currently reading uh, uh, the 800-page biography of, um, of Frederick Douglass, the, you know, the African-American of the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I'm working my way through Ralph Waldo Emerson's uh, selected works. I just finished Nature, the first book that he, uh, the first book that he published, and um, and then I read a biography of uh, Frank Ramsey, the great uh, polymathic genius philosopher, who most people haven't heard of because he died at age 26. But that's about a 600-page uh, bio that I've that I've uh, just you know just finished. And in terms of um, was it one other question? Favorite books? Is that the other question? Uh, all-time favorite, sure. Yeah, so uh, in fiction, I would say Brothers Karamazov, um, uh, War and Peace, Moby Dick. I mentioned Magic Mountain, which was great. Uh, Conrad's Heart of Darkness, and then Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian. And then oh. in, uh, since I have a, you know, went to grad school in philosophy, uh, David Hume's Treatise on Human Nature, William James' Varieties of Religious Experience and Pragmatism, uh, John Dewey's Essays in Experimental Logic, uh, Schopenhauer's The World as Will and Representation, and then anything by Wittgenstein. And finance stuff, reminiscence of the stock operator, is something I used to read every year, but since I've got it about memorized, I can skip a year or two. <laughs> and... Um, Robert Skidelsky's three-volume biography of John Maynard Keynes is a, you know, is a is a masterpiece. I think quite fascinating. Tell us about your mentors. Who influenced your career? Who helped make you the Bill Miller you are today? Um, well, I mentioned earlier that I think that a, a, a large part of that has to do with the, the Hopkins philosophy, you know, department. And I actually had a chance when I when I gave that gift to one of the one of their their leading lights in philosophy is a philosopher of science named Peter Atchenstein. As Peter's in his mid eighties right now, but he was president. Uh, he, was, he was chairman of the department when I got when I got admitted in 1974, 1975. And um, and I, I said to Peter, uh, I said, you know, 
I said, what was the, I said, Peter, I, I was certainly not qualified to be, you know, admitted to Hopkins. I wasn't even, I wasn't even a philosophy undergraduate major. And Hopkins is one of the only schools, uh, quality schools in the country that would take somebody that did not have, you know, a philosophy undergraduate background. What Hopkins did was they said, if you didn't have a philosophy background, you had to send in three examples of your philosophical work. So, you know, without making a long story, uh, or making making a long actually making a long story short, Peter just said, "Well, you know, we're a small department. Uh, <laughs> we'd only admit, you know, uh, five or six uh, people into the PhD program every year." And he said, "And we always tried to have one of those people be what we considered a high risk person. Like they probably couldn't get anywhere else, but there was there was some promise there that we saw. And if we got lucky, then uh, you know, they they might they might." Uh, uh, shed some light or do some good for the philosophy department so and he said and we really got lucky with you so i thought that was i thought that was a good one but you, you um, were the philosophy my, department's volatility trade yeah exactly right exactly right uh and then you know my uh my initial partner at leg mason uh ernie caney who died in 2010 at age 90 92 was a classic value investor and so we we fit very well intellectually but he was also open to new ways of of thinking and uh and so we were also able i think i was able to you know work with him on some of the things that we talked about earlier in terms of return on capital and stuff like that and i'd say the thing that he that he taught me most was that uh he was a he was like probably the most optimistic person in the world and he had a very long time horizon and uh and so what i learned from him over the, the you know how long we worked together you know 25 years or something like that Actually, thirty over thirty years. Uh, uh, what I learned from him is that you know that generally speaking, having an optimistic take on things in a long-term time horizon is a lot. Is a lot more. First, it's a lot more fun, and second, it, it gives you a lot better results than having a short-term time horizon and getting all negative about all the stuff that's going wrong when the market or in the world. So that was that was very helpful to me as well. And then, of course, Chip Mason, who who stuck with me when I had uh, you know had. Uh, occasional bad bad year or two that's you know he he also had a long-term time horizon and understood that underperformance comes with the territory so instead of making a change after you after your three-year record goes behind the market he just said you know this is a long-term this is a long-term bet we're making and we're just going to stay with it so that that was very helpful to me and it worked out okay for leg too what sort of advice would you give a recent college graduate who is considering a career in asset management well i would give the same advice to to a well first of all the, the, the Slightly different answer here. So, if they're considering a a, a, a career in asset management, then I would say understand that that a lot of asset management is in secular decline relative to quantitative strategies and and uh, and passive strategies. So, it's a lot harder than if you're in an industry which um, is in secular advance, which it was when I when I got into it. So, that's that's a big difference. It makes it a lot makes it a lot harder. But it, but in general, uh, I would say that. To, to him or her, the same thing I would say to anybody that was, you know, getting a job, which is that uh, I think the worst advice that people can get in getting a job is that you'll read about, oh, you need, you need to take control of your career, you need to make sure you get what's coming to you, you need to make sure that, you know, no one's going to care about you the way you do, so you need to make sure that you fight for all this stuff, and I think that's terrible advice, because I think that, you know, for me, generally speaking, what you would want and, and what, you know, I, the way I tried to manage my career is that your job, no matter what your job is, your job is to add value to your employer. Uh, it's not to try and extract value from them and, and, and get into your pocket. Your job is to add value to them, and then you can get some of that value, a part of it, if you're doing that, 
And and so, maybe contrary to what people think, being underpaid is a very powerful position to be in. Because if you're if you're adding more value than you're costing, then you're a very valuable employee, and you're you're going to be treated well if your if your employer is rational. And uh, I mean, nobody nobody got fired for creating too much value for their employer, and nobody keeps a job very long if they're getting paid more than they're worth. So being moderately underpaid is a, is a really good thing. And then uh, other things I'd say, which are probably not uh, terribly uh, unusual, I think you want to basically you know have a have a good positive attitude all the time. You want to do what your job is with uh, with uh, uh, with uh, alacrity and a sense of urgency, and you want to be you know simultaneously you know a, a good subordinate to your boss, a good boss to your subordinates, and a good colleague to your colleagues. That would be the core of my advice. Fascinating stuff. And our final question: What do you know about investing theory and practice today that you wish you knew forty years ago when you were first getting started? The thing that the thing that I am constantly um, realizing, and I, I think I've got it internalized now, but it's been after 40 years, is that, um, that, the, that the markets and the world and the economy is so much more complicated than you have any idea. And, it's a, and so having dogmatic views and pontificating about the world's this way or this is going to happen or the Hong Kong peg is going to do this or the Chinese, you're going to do that is a complete waste of time because nobody has any idea what's going to happen in the in the future there are certain things that you know and then psychologically what what you find out is that you know if you make five predictions and and you know two are right and three are wrong you'll you'll remember that two are right and the three that were wrong you'll blame on something else so i i think that uh... i think that there's a lot of psychological uh... barriers and problems that people need to overcome and i would say just being you know, I'd say being as skeptical and as humble as you can be with respect to what you think you know. And, uh, and the other thing is that, that, again, I've found helpful to me. I wouldn't say other people be helpful, but I get asked a lot, well, what do you worry about in the market? What do you worry about? And my answer, which might sound insouciant, but it's true, is that I don't really worry about anything because the, the entire world of investors and and commentators are always worried about everything. Every time you turn on the television, you're saying, this is going to go wrong, that's going to go wrong, I'm worried about this, I'm worried about that, the market's overvalued, there's too much this, there's too much. So with all those people worrying about it, there's lots of, there's lots of, there's no shortage of people worrying about things. And so what I try and do is focus on where are the opportunities in the market, given whatever the market appears to be, and not, you know, doing a bunch of wailing and hand-wringing about how things are going to get worse or this is a terrible situation. So I'd, I'd say that probably goes back to my old, you know, late partner Ernie, who you know, would always say, "Well, let's 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 see if there's anything positive in the stuff that we can figure out. We got we got plenty of negativism that we can all, we can always we can always uh, count on being around." Thank you, Bill, for being so generous with your time. Man, that was just fascinating stuff. Really, really good stuff. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and check out all the other 300 such podcasts we've done over the past six years. Uh, You can find that at iTunes, Spotify, Google, Overcast, Stitcher, wherever your finer podcasts are sold. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Check out my weekly column at bloomberg.com slash opinion. Sign up for our daily reads at ritholtz.com. Be sure to give us a review at Apple iTunes. Follow me on Twitter at ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put these conversations together each week. 
Marufol is our audio engineer. Michael Boyle is my producer. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.